Hey there, everybody. Welcome to the Big Bear Don't Care podcast, where we give you survival tips as well as all the latest in bear news and uh, and some bear facts as well. We got some bear facts for you on the show, everything you need to know about bears. So if you see a bear, you can tell them what, Mr. Grizz- Grizzly Man? You can tell them where to go. And the most important part of telling a bear where to I, go. You're supposed to be don't care that you don't care. Don't care, damn it. <laughs> I uh, got some bear facts. You got any bear facts, Mr. Grizzly, uh, Grizzly Bill, Grizzly well, Bill, um, Bill Morrison over there? As a matter of fact, um, I've got all sorts of bear facts that I could deliver bear, in fact. But uh, what I am going to tell you today is that um, how you deal with bear, and this is important, depends on what kind of bear it is. Very there important. is this um, uh, persistent rumor that the best thing you can do is play dead. Um, but oftentimes that just traumatizes the bear emotionally for life. Yeah. He feels yeah, like he yeah, just yeah. saw somebody die. But no, really. Um, uh, so the bear you has are, to live with that for the rest of his life. <laughs> yeah, but no, you are perfectly free to play dead with a bear that wants to hunt you. Mm. But if it's a scavenging bear, like say a black bear, uh, well, then if you play dead, then he thinks to himself, yeah. "Oh, well, great. There's some easy dead food." To eat. Yeah, we can we can stop doing these accents if you want. I do have a bear fact for you though. Do you want a bear fact? Yeah, please. Okay, so you you mentioned like being able to run away from bears. That uh, or no, you didn't mention that one. That's a strategy. Can you run away from bears? You mentioned uh, you mentioned just crouching. That depends if you're head. faster than the person next to you. <laughs> that answer is so much better than my stupid thing that I researched. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> bears top speed for bears. Um, 60 kilometers an hour. So I know, I know this is way off topic for us, but as somebody who's grown up around bears, uh, black bears specifically, you know how I deal with them? How you deal? I yell at them and big arms and I start walking towards them. I don't even bother to throw my arms in the air. I point straight at them and I say, Uh Hey you, (laughs) and then I walk towards them. Yeah. And usually with a black bear, they're super easily intimidated. Oh, yeah. And that's always enough to just like, yeah. they're gone. Yeah. Well, you don't, that's, I think that's the best thing. Yeah. Make yourself, make yourself big. Try to intimidate the bear. Oddly enough is the way to do it. Just make sure that you're putting up a fight. Right. And the bear is going to be like, well, this isn't worth it. Um, but you, you definitely can't outrun them. You know how Usain Bolt is still the fastest guy. And you know how fast that guy can run. He's still the fastest guy with legs. Oh, well, if you got le- okay. most of us have Have legs. you heard about these people with the prosthetics? They're faster than him, but that doesn't matter. I'm saying for the average person, can you outrun a bear? We'll look that up later. No, God now no. we have God no. we'll, we'll fact check that later. 37 though, kilometers. That's what he can do an hour. I'd rather fight a bear than try to outrun it. That's that's my take on yeah, that. Yeah, dude. Yeah, dude. Unless you're going to maybe run down a hill, then maybe but anyways, I don't know. I'm kind of chubby. Running down a hill usually turns into just rolling. <laughs> you're just both rolling. It's you're getting rolled over by a bear. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, this isn't the. We already stopped doing the accents, so you guys probably figured out that this isn't the Big Bear Don't Care podcast. It is. I'll let you do it this time. Just don't bang the dust too hard. This is the Photo Friends podcast. Indeed it is, and we are here for part two of our amazingly long series on 
moon <laughs> photography, the Apollo program, taking photos of space. Uh, we're trying to stick to Apollo 11 mostly, mostly talk about Apollo 11. What did we cover in the in the first part of this, man? We talked about uh, the background of the space race a little bit. And yeah, I think we, did. we talked about some of the astronauts themselves for a little while. Mm-hmm. Yeah, some basic uh, facts around it. Those those commonly heard things that you hear. The eagle has landed, you know, all of that type of stuff. I think we were kind of setting up, uh, setting, setting, so to speak. Setting it, setting things up. Yeah, uh, we covered a little bit of like why it was so hard that it wasn't actually something that was inevitable and always going to happen, and just a matter of you know uh, deciding to do it. Like it was, it was really tough. It took uh, the efforts of a lot of people, billions of dollars, and it wasn't just the the three guys. You know, it was it was really like a nation's effort and a nation like captivated by this that allowed it to happen, right? And even maybe and the he- world. Yeah. You mentioned that we were sort of am- amateur historians and. Um, mm. Um, I, um, as somebody who listens to a lot of podcasts and, uh, as I get older, I still read, but like, uh, I have no interest in stories anymore. I only read, you know, history books or, um, things online that I find. What I've noticed is that in very serious history circles, uh, inevitability is a very bad word. Yeah. Um, you know, um, Sometimes uh, the tide of history sweeps things along, but I think that you had it best when you said that no matter what, there are always forks in the road. There are always junctions that you can see where things could have been different. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, yeah, the idea that this this was an inevitability, um, you know, that's that really can't be understated at all. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, just... You know, it's very, very likely that these guys could have gone there. <clears throat> and either failed to land or landed and then yep. not been able to come back. Yeah, the amount of different disciplines, like the mastery of different disciplines, whether that's rocket science, like literally one of the hardest things ever, right? That's why people say, oh, it's rocket science. It's the amount hard. of parts of yeah. the machine just the machine that had to exactly. all work without yeah. without yeah. failing. Yep. Yep. You needed everything yeah, just so everything to work out. A lot of luck and a lot of a lot of luck involved as well and a lot of uh a lot, a of, lot of skill and highly technical skill. Yeah. And a lot you of know? chutzpah. <laughs> chutzpah. I like yeah. that. And one of the things that was definitely developed uh, during this time, like one of the things that definitely got better because of this stuff is is optics, imaging, right? And we definitely talked about the importance of that. You mentioned even specifically how the the lunar module, right? The thing that was actually on the surface, how it had just like a yeah. really quick, uh, like, you know, Ikea style, convenient pull out thing, pull that out. You've got quick your deploy press camera. Yeah. 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 I picture something very cartoony that like, uh, <laughs> inflates with a whistling sound and then like yeah. just drops out of the thing onto the ground. Yeah. But like yes. if it inflated, it would float away. So anyways, yes. yes. Yeah. Uh, we're going to kind of pick up, uh, pick up right where we left off. We're going to get into a little bit more detail about the space race. And we're actually going to talk about some of the photos that were captured, uh, starting with, uh, Ed White, uh, the Gemini four mission, 1965. We'll do that in a minute, but, uh, I think to kind of, just set the stage here we'll bring that moon music back in and Devin will uh be able to kind of get us in the right mindset here so maybe dim down the lights uh start picturing the moon uh you know oh he's gonna really do it okay (laughs) 
Okay, nice. All right. Actually, that's actually better lighting. That's better lighting. Uh, throw on some, I don't know, King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard. Um, this is a good time to mention that I have a podcast. Uh, I have a podcast. You guys probably knew that. I have a playlist on uh, Spotify related to this podcast and i've put a bunch of moon stuff on there so you can oh, actually find it yeah if you search uh i think just like photo friends music it'll be there yeah so um when you mention uh gemini 4 and ed white are you talking about the photograph uh, we can both talk about it but you got to do us a poem first oh right that's right okay i'll wait for the music oh it's here it's already here <laughs> okay, I didn't realize that. A rat done bit my sister Nell with Whitey on the moon. Her face and arms began to swell and Whitey's on the moon. I can't pay no doctor bill but Whitey's on the moon. Ten years from now I'll be paying still while Whitey's on the moon. Man just up my rent last night because Whitey's on the moon. No hot water, no toilets, no lights, but Whitey's on the moon. You want me to go on, by the way? There's like it goes on for a little while. No, that's good. I think we get the idea, man. That was sick. Yeah, that was a good, that was a good read, man. I, I was really in Thank the you. moment, actually. That was that's great. Thank you. Wonderful. Um, that's Gil Scott Heron, right? Correct. Yeah. yeah. And it reflected um, not just a common opinion for black people at the time, but a common opinion for a lot of people, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, inflation on their eyes, um, you know, questions about um, housing and the price of food, as always. That's just kind of a thing healthcare. throughout human history. Healthcare, exactly. But then at the same time, here they are clearly... Um, clearly just taking money and 200 uh, billion for just for one mission. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And I mean, when you really, if you want to boil it down to something simple, taking $200 billion and essentially blowing it up, <laughs> you know, so to get you when, to the moon though, but yeah, I get that. But <laughs> if I, if, if I'm starving yeah, and you having a hard time providing for my family right. and wondering when the government's going to help, uh it is a legitimate question now for me sitting here where i am now um like despite whatever the costs might have been i think it was worth it because i think that going into the future our ability to navigate space and to go other places is going to become important Mm -hmm. there are things that i agree and disagree with elon musk about and uh that is a whole fucking can of worms right there <laughs> but i do for sure <laughs> i do agree with the idea that as a multi-planet species yeah. we are much safer in mm-hmm. that um uh, we can definitely definitely guarantee that our culture is going to continue um more and more as we are on more different planets yeah. or systems or whatever. Yeah, I agree with you. You and I are a couple of uh, big space fans, you know. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm more of a Star Wars guy than a, than a Star Trek guy, you know. Select, and I'm very Trek. Yeah, 
select Star Wars, though. You got to be careful with how you pick and choose your. Yeah, unfortunately, there was a time when all Star Wars was good, but uh, we've reached a time where um, that's not always the case. But fucking Rogue One was dope. (laughs) Yeah. Anyways, (laughs) of course, you and I are going to love it, right? We're going to love this shit and say, oh, yeah, two billion is like, what is that? I blow up two hundred billion dollars more. Yeah. And I mean, if you think about it in context, the defense budget of uh, the United States right now, if you let me look at it, it's like outrageous, dude. But when a calculation that I did actually do for the time, and these are all adjusted for inflation, by the way, these numbers, uh, the Vietnam War costs like five times more than. Yeah. Yeah. So the fiscal year 2023 uh, Department of Defense budget for the United States is seven hundred and seventy three billion dollars. Yeah. That's in a single year. Yeah. If we took one seventh of that and put that into space every year, yeah. where would we be and what would we yeah. be doing? And less, or and then you have that much. Put that into food. Yeah. yeah, and you have that much less war. But, but I mean, that's a whole other podcast, and I'm yeah. just going to close that tab, get out of that rabbit hole. Yeah, uh, yeah, I think it is like important to contextualize this stuff in that way. Like that's a word that keeps coming up in in this series, right? Like just to try to not fall for the the simple way of looking at things like the simple historical narrative right and to really look at that bigger picture like you know it's easy to say oh was this was all altruistic and it was just to advance mankind but then you actually look okay nixon was in power at the time you do have the the vietnam war going on uh, obviously this is a good distraction from that and also, you know, a way to, to dunk on the Soviet Union and, you know, is it altruistic? That, is it just for science? Is it for humanity? Like, I don't know. Is um, it? Uh, so like, before I get into what I wanted to jump into, I think that what happened was it completely started out as 100% a competition. Mm-hmm. And as an effort to help the nation convince itself that it was superior and that it was safe, right? Like Mm -hmm. it was like, uh, you know, it definitely without any doubt in the beginning was very much, um, you know, the Russians have just shown that their science is doing better than ours and that their rockets are doing better than ours. That has damaged our national confidence significantly. We need to pick a goal so lofty that when we achieve it, we will have proven our superiority to ourselves and to everybody, and it will be uncontestable. Mm-hmm. So unachievable that, you know, we might fail at it, but just achievable enough that if we do succeed. It's changing the entire game, right? Changing it's like, the I game. Was trying exactly, to come up, right? I was trying to come up with an analogy for it. Like if you do want to view it as that like gambling thing, it's just like putting a ridiculous amount of money on ridiculous odds. It's kind of like if you want to make a sports analogy, it's like coming $10, out $10,000 being... on 31 black. <laughs> right? And then just like yeah. winning somehow. I mean like, yeah, we just, like we totally changed. <clears throat> no one wants to play with us anymore and all of that, right? We, we're the it's undisputed like, winners. It's like yeah. that, except you spent 10 years trying to build the yeah. best, best possible possible dice for it yeah <laughs> you know what i mean so it's like yeah it's, it's like, like tons taking of a research huge gamble and, all of and then the and then like fucking yeah. baking your dice just right right but i, was also I kind of, wanted to say yeah. while we were still touching on yes it, i think that it's easy to fall into the trap when we read about history of thinking too much that everybody is 
the same. And I mean, like in that way that, um, you know, we all want to be happy and we all want to love and stuff like that. We are all the same in those ways, but sometimes it's easy to look at history and very much misunderstands people's motivations Hmm. because we misunderstand the realities of their world. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So it's like, for example, um, since it falls into the context of what we're talking about a little bit, Nazi Germany, a lot of people don't understand how people could surrender their will and their efforts to the nation unquestionably like that. But what it really comes down to is that um, at that time, governments had learned how to how to turn ethnic nationalism into a much larger concept, yeah. which then required service and devotion. Yeah. It wasn't enough to be German. Yeah. There's a German nation and you, you, you have to participate in it and you have to protect it. You know what I mean? Uh, governments co-opted um, ethnic identities and used them to control people. That's essentially what nationalism was. And fascism was the ultimate extension of that. Um, and if we look further in the past, you could look at Romans and people would say, why the hell did Romans do what they did? Well, yeah. because they were highly religious, not in that they prayed all day, but in that they really did believe that if they did bad things, the gods would shoot lightning at them or, or give them a plague and kill them. Or that if they succeeded, it was a sign that things they, they had done were okay with the gods. Um, people are all the same in the ways that I mentioned, but it's hard for us in a modern age to understand how, why people in the past did things, because sometimes those things are very foreign to us. Yeah. And like I said, at the, I think, you know, the beginning of the first episode that like we take these big, um, these big lofty ideas and like this conception of the human race all being one and we have like a collective responsibility or collect some type of collective project as the human race like we think that that's how people have our have always thought uh but you know oh no we'll we'll talk here there there's literally like a photo that was taken right we'll get into it (laughs) but it like changed everybody's mind about what what is the earth and stuff like that right with one photo yeah it's in and it is true so so where uh, are we headed where are we going all right so let's just uh yeah, I just wanted to point out that the Soviet Union was winning uh, before um, mm, before America clearly. before America did the whole uh, Apollo Eleven jam. Right, the first satellite. I think basically from the moment Sputnik hit the yeah, sky, exactly. yeah, America was in second place. Nineteen fifty-seven, uh, Sputnik, yeah. the first ever satellite, and that means just like some shit orbiting the Earth ever put up by anybody. Right, that was the USSR. Yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah. And um, it was like a, a really huge moment for a lot of different reasons. But when the Russians announced it, they were very happy to mention that uh, uh, Sputnik weighed 180 pounds. Yeah. And uh, American science was baffled, absolutely baffled by this. Yeah. Because the best that they were able to do with the satellite, uh, I think, was 40 or 60 pounds. Yeah. Um, wow. Humans are heavy, man. <laughs> yeah no i mean just satellites you know sputnik was uh i know but to look forward and be like yeah we're gonna put a human in there right that's a lot of power. oh yeah 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 <laughs> if we can't uh if you can't get a dog up how are you gonna get a human and that's that's the next thing that they did was get a dog up into space uh which was the first living thing in space i believe yeah uh Laika. Laika. 
Yeah. And you know, if uh, they, they actually have a quote here from the dog when they got it up to space, he said, I didn't like that. <laughs> I wasn't sure where you were going with that, but I'm, I'm going to remember that one. That was the same year, uh, 1957. It's pretty crazy. That was a big year. Yeah. For, uh, for the on the one hand, um, I think it's adorable that a dog went to space. Uh, but on the other hand, um, I feel like I just don't like the feeling that I get from a dog going to space yeah. and being rigged up to be executed, yeah. you know, like, okay, mm. yes, he went to space. Very excellent. It's well, like, uh, the, he's the a poison hero, was cheaper than the, uh, the poison was cheaper than the parachute, you know? Well, this, uh, we'd say he's a hero, right? Like we look at, uh, Oh, for sure. Yeah. He was, he was a pioneer of mammal space flight. Sure. <laughs> he's a pioneer of space flight in general. He's like, it's pretty crazy. Uh, and then, yeah, they go and follow that up. And this is why Kennedy had to come out and give that speech. It's interesting. It happens in the same year, 1961. Uh, Yuri yeah. Gagarin, hopefully I'm saying uh -huh. that okay, yeah, was close, yeah. the first human being in space, bro. Mm -hmm. It's pretty crazy. There's this, uh, I didn't have time to look into this one, but we're just going to, we're just going to print the legend on this. <laughs> Yuri Gagarin, um, when he came back from space, he blew a little bit off course landed in uh someone's field in the soviet union there he's walking through the field this lady sees him out there and she says like who are you where did you come from and he just looked at her and he said i came from outer space <laughs> i've never heard that i hope that that's true it's actually the uh i don't know a bunch of people say that about a bunch of astronauts if you look it up there's like there's like gonna be 12 dudes that they're like this quote right but uh, it's funny there's a lot of um there's a lot of like very fast legend making yeah. that surrounds uh space travel you know what i mean like yeah um, no kidding romanticism romanticism that's what we'll call it mm -hmm. um, yeah. so, okay so yuri gagarin he does his flight and obviously once again the americans are feeling put back um and behind the pack right mm-hmm so they do this funny thing where, okay, they send John Glenn to space mm -hmm. and they make the, the very important point that he's the second person in space. That's our achievement. Yep. But he's the first American. Uh, I can talk, I can start talking about uh, Gemini 4 and Ed White's uh, photos of yeah, lead us spacecraft in orbit. Do you want to get into that? Yes, please lead us okay. on. Okay. Well, there was an American. I mean, there was um, there was an American who orbited the Earth. He was called Ed White. Uh, in 1965, he took some pretty cool photos. He's uh, coming in second place here to the Russians as well. Alexei Leonov uh, beat Leonov. him to be the, the first guy to do a space walk. And there's photos of that also on our Instagram. Um, he was attached to the spaceship by a 20 foot long, they actually call it an umbilical cord, which I think is super yeah. interesting. It's going to tie into uh, the symbology here that we'll get into later. We're going to talk a little bit about... Uh, about that i don't want to kind of take up time at this point talking about that he was out there for about 20 minutes uh pretty crazy and i have a quote here um basically they had to force him to come back in he got, got a little bit nuts out there 
because it was like nothing else he had ever experienced. Uh, so they had to be like, Ed, fucking get back in here, dude. Like, get in here. You're, you're running out of oxygen and whatnot, right? Uh, you know, that's uh, that sort of thing is actually more common than you would mm. think. Yeah. yeah. Um, one of the first crews they put on the International Space Station um, essentially went on strike. Yeah. Uh, the NASA had planned out tasks for them 24 hours a day because they wanted to make sure that while they were up there, they just, they were busy and didn't really have time to fuck around or, yeah. or get unhappy or anything like yeah. that. But the astronauts just could not take themselves away from sitting in the windows and looking at the earth. Yeah. Yeah. And so they essentially, at one point they were like, no, we've been working for two or three days straight. We're going on strike. We're turning our mics off. We're, yeah. um, we're going we're on strike. Induce... Yeah, we're just going to go look at the earth for a while. Try to bust our... It's uh, Karl Marx's birthday today as well, so happy birthday to Karl Marx. Uh, try, to bust the, try to bust our space union, you know? You, that's how you get away with... Uh, oh, that's fair, yeah. That's how you can get away from the bourgeoisie, go into space. Uh, you know, a lot of people say that uh, Engels really did most of the work on... We are not uh, going to get into it. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know? Do, yeah, you know my my theories on Hegel. Let's t let's talk about that. Um, okay, so uh, yeah, I have a quote um, from Ed White when he got back in. He said, "I'm coming back in, and it's the saddest moment of my life." Yeah, and uh, I am. Um, I'm actually just opening up a few pictures. Yeah. Um, from that uh, that spacewalk, and I can see two of them here. Yeah. But one of them that really sticks out to me is this Ed White. And um, he is in the spacesuit, and you can see the Earth behind him and below him. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's a whole bunch of uh, the umbilical cord kind of mm, yes. floating around I in front of him. But That's my favorite as well of those. He know. really, he, you know, he, he, you know, I can't even see his face because there's a shield over it. But he is just chilling there in a comfortable position yeah. and God knows what he's looking at because um, I don't know what's behind the camera or down to the left where there's more earth, but like Al there's an alien spaceship parked there. I mean, uh, more than that, I've if actually you look at his visor. Of... You can see it in the visor. <laughs> That's pretty funny. I'm not going to get into that. Imagine. <laughs> um, I like, uh, I like history and I like physics and astronomy, but uh, I'm not much of a uh, conspiracy theorist. Well, we're going to, I didn't tell um, you, but we're, uh, when this one's done, we're going to do another hour on all the conspiracy. No, I'm totally kidding. Sick lizard people. Imagine. Yeah. Um, but anyways, uh, I've actually, I saw a documentary once and it was very simple. They took all the living astronauts who had either been to the moon or who had been on spacewalks and they sat them down in a chair with a camera and they said, how did you feel the first time that you saw the earth from space? How did you feel and how did it change you? And it was an entire two hour documentary of these people describing how um, essentially so many things that they thought mattered and that they thought were important uh, about life in the world. As soon as they were up there looking at the entire thing as one piece and they realized how big it is and how small we are, but at the same time, how small it all is. Yeah. Uh, they felt like none of those things mattered anymore. And it, uh, every single one of them in this documentary, it changed uh, their perspective on life and on the world and everything. And I have to 
I have to Google it because for anybody yeah. that hasn't seen it, I'd recommend it. But well, I, uh, why I think don't you it, take over for a sec? I think it changed everyone's outlook, right? Like seeing the the, the pictures had the same effect. Yeah. Well, and what it means to me, like I'll just say it right now, like that photo, literally, it call it's called the umbilical cord. He's floating there. He's a little baby, right? It kind of. I was explaining this to Masha. Like I really care about this stuff. I think that. Um, it might even be just like an evolutionary scenario that like man, mankind, you know, men and women were meant to go to space. Like we're, that's literally like we're in our tadpole phase until we go to space, right? That's some real sit in your dorm room and, and fucking smoke a cannon shit, right? <laughs> yeah. And I mean, if you want to get into the philosophy of it, yeah. um, and I'm not, I'm not religious in particular, but in my mind, any piece of technology that we make is an extension of our minds. And if yeah. our minds were created by the creator, then we were meant to explore the depths of what we can do with them and where that can take us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's as simple as that. We weren't given minds to sit around here on this planet and drink too much and jack off. Yeah, that's going to be our other podcast, the Drink Too Much and Jack Off podcast. I like that idea. Uh, or I as I call it, Tuesday. <laughs> Do you record it? <laughs> Not yet, but if I can make money for that, oh, you fucking content. right, I will. That's content, baby. Uh, there were a couple of cameras that were used here. Uh, it was easier to, to use 35 millimeter at this point, just smaller cameras, yeah. right? The Zeus uh, Contrax was used, I believe, in the photos that Ed took. Um, but there's also photos that were taken on a Hasselblad. So we see the Hasselblad 500 coming on the scene here. This is going to be a very important camera uh, when it comes to Apollo 11. There, I, I do have a question camera. here. Yeah. Um, so um, Is it a camera question, Devin? It is, yeah. Okay, so cool. when it oh. comes to the Apollo 11 stuff, yeah, uh, there's like one or two pictures that are taken of Neil Armstrong, but then... Uh, they took the camera and mounted it to his spacesuit, which was the intention the entire time. Yes. And then he took pictures with the camera mounted to his shoulder. Now, okay. in this early part of the space program, uh, is another astronaut operating the camera by hand that took this picture? Is it mounted to the outside of the space program, operated uh, remotely? Like, what's happening here? So the ones that are of Ed... Right. So that umbilical cord photo, I can't, if mm -hmm. you know the name of the other astronaut, please shout it out. I think there's two guys. Um, on it might be Gus Grissom, but I'm going to find it now. You might be right. Uh, so the ones that are obviously of Ed uh, are taken on that Hasselblad inside nope. the thing, just in his hands. James A. McDivitt. James A. McDivitt. So the, yeah. yeah. So a lot of them are taken on a Hasselblad inside the cap, inside the capsule. Oh, so he took that through a window. Yeah, yeah, the one that okay, one of him floating. You. Uh huh. The ones that Ed took were on those thir the thirty five millimeter um, Zeus camera. And was that mounted? Yeah, mounted to his spacesuit outside, like air sealed and all okay. that shit. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah, and he actually had uh, a little like joystick that he could fly around, so he could like steer himself and shit like that, like a video game. Oh, did he have like yeah. uh, some kind of like a gas operated system or? Yeah. yeah, yeah, that he could propel himself around with. Uh huh interesting uh i yeah. it doesn't look obvious to me from that photograph but yeah. it wouldn't be hard so yeah. i mean i don't doubt it well, what's in his hand what's in his hand He's yeah got a in the in the um well it doesn't look like a camera or so the like, joystick for steering oh maybe that's what that is mm -hmm. yeah 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 okay i, I see so. it 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, interesting. Just uh, we'll we'll have to kind of move along here, just for the the sake of time. We could definitely talk about just yeah. like one. We could talk about any one of these missions for an hour. Apparently, with the skill that Devin and I uh, have that we're discovering. Uh, I mean, we kind of. <laughs> I we're think we're just going to end up recorded. making a space history podcast. Hey, dude, that would be freaking crazy, man. That would be. Awesome. <laughs> I'd love that. Yeah, maybe we'll do that. Uh, if we do, then you guys just heard the the birth of that, right? The birth of an idea that will change Devin and I's life, at least. I hope. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he met Yuri Gagarin, which is really cool. I think that's super Who did, sorry? Uh, Ed White. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. That's really cool, because Yuri Gagarin, he died young, if I remember correctly. Yeah, let's talk about Earthrise. Uh, so that last photo that we, the, the series of photos we just talked about, 1965. Uh, this is in 68, Apollo 8. Uh, this yes. was the first mission to circle the moon in 1968. That's correct. Yeah. Right. So originally the intention was for Apollo 7 to circle the moon, yeah. but they were still having some some difficulties. So Apollo 7 went into Earth orbit orbited a few times, tested some systems and went down. And then they prepared Apollo 8 to go around. Um, the intention was they would go to the moon, orbit it, um, I think something like 20 times, take um, extension, extensive pictures of the surface uh, so that they could find a good landing site. Yeah, wow. And then come home. Now, uh, seeing an Earthrise from the moon is rare. Yeah. Huh. Uh, when you're on the surface of the moon, actually, it, I am not a physicist, but if I understand what I read right, you can't actually see an Earthrise from the surface of the moon because of uh, some simple physics about the curvature of the moon and other shit. Okay, and crazy. even if you're in orbit of the moon, you may only see an Earthrise maybe one in every four or five orbits. Hmm. So... Apollo 8 leaves Earth, arrives at the moon, does two or three orbits while they have their cameras pointed at it, and uh, and then they come around for, I think, their fifth or sixth pass mm -hmm. around the, the, the light side of the moon. And as they did, um, it just drew a blank on his name. Anders? But, Anders, William Anders. William Anders was in one of the windows. You don't need, you don't need Wikipedia, bro. You got me. Jerry, and Jerrypedia. Poripedia. Yeah. Anders saw the Earthrise pop up, and um, he, I, I ended up going down a, a rabbit hole on about this very moment. Oh, I went on many in the research for this fucker for sure. So. <laughs> This is where things get really interesting. Yeah. Everybody's had trouble sleeping the entire time 
um, and for like a like to really paint the picture of how tired and worn out everybody is on this Apollo 8 mission when it came time for the first sleep shift Frank Borman took his sleeping pill went to sleep woke up two hours later and then promptly shit and puked everywhere and since they were in space it all turned into perfectly hydrostatic little globules and floated everywhere wow so everybody did what they could to pick up the poop and the puke as best they could. Um, and the, the, the sources are very clear on that, as best they could. And um, and so they moved on and everybody had a hard time sleeping the whole way. So they come to their fourth rotation around the moon. Everybody's running on, say, you know, two or three hours of sporadic sleep and, you know, kind of doing their best to function. And then, of course, William Anders sees the Earth rise on top of the moon and he loses his mind and starts taking pictures. And uh, Jim Lovell uh, runs to the to the window. I don't know if he had a camera and started taking pictures, but Frank Borman uh, set the craft on auto, grabbed the closest camera and he started taking pictures, too. So when they landed, um, everybody on, on just Earth. being tired and disoriented. Just to be clear, they landed it, on Earth. They didn't land on the moon. <laughs> yeah, 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 on Earth. Circled the um, came back. Frank Borman took credit and got credit for the Earthrise photo. No. And that it's Anders. That myth that myth persisted until the 80s. And even Anders uh, was perfectly happy to to either he didn't remember it properly or wasn't really willing to put a fight up about it. Hmm. But uh yeah, so the the originally he got credit, uh Frank Borman got credit for that photo. Um, and uh, William Andrews didn't. And that wow. myth persisted until the 80s when um, a historian had NASA bring the tapes up, tapes up. And then he had uh, the tapes run through a computer. They took out as much background noise as they could and turned everything up. And what they found out was that at the moment that it happened, Frank Borman was flying the craft and William Andrews had his hands on the camera and was sitting in the window and uh, it, it was just very, very clearly one of those cases of they were tired, they were stressed. It was a big moment, and poop, human poop, memory poop is and almost puke. never what we think it is. Poop and pukes floating around, you know? Yeah, exactly. Poop and puke floating around. So um, eventually it came out in the 80s that, yeah, it was William Anders that took the photo. Um, to a lot of people, it may not seem like a huge deal. Um, but this was, it wasn't the first photo taken by a human from space. No. Um, Anders had taken one uh, initially flying away from the Earth. It wasn't quite the same. It didn't have the effect. Uh, a satellite a few years before had taken uh, an Earthrise photo. Uh, and again, uh, it, it had a little bit of effect on people, but maybe either the timing was wrong or they weren't as affected by a computer taking a photo as a person. I'm not yeah. sure. Um, but the, the photo that Apollo 8 brought back, it really changed the way that people looked at the Earth. And it was the beginning of a change in the way that people saw what the space program was about. Yeah, 16 months after we saw ourselves from the moon, the first Earth Day uh, took place. Yeah, and, and it was very widely, widely referenced at the time that that photo was a really huge part of why that movement started of people seeing the earth for the first time 
as a whole piece and as a, a complete system that required all of its parts. Yeah, it's crazy that like the, you get quotes like this, but here's one from Anders. We went to explore the moon and discovered the earth. Right? That's what... Yeah, I have a quote from Anders. That was the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen, said Anders. Totally unanticipated because we were being trained to go to the moon. It wasn't going to the moon and looking back at earth. Mm-hmm. I never even thought about that. You know, the, this idea that uh, they had been just so caught up in the idea of just getting to the moon that they had totally forgotten um, what they had left and what they were going back to. And also the idea of just getting there and turning around and being like, whoa, it's, it's almost crazy to me to think of a time where somebody, if they wanted to, if they wanted to know what the earth looked like from space, they had to just imagine it. Draw it or something if you wanted to. Yeah. Draw it. But just like, just, there was no way to know what that was going to look like. They just kind of, you know, uh, it was, it was just a feat of imagination. Mm-hmm. Um, but then at some point that concept went from a feat of imagination to no, 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 you can see the earth from space. This is what it yeah. looks like. And it's been done, you know, yeah. and you hear uh, that I think it ch- you hear, you hear similar quotes from a lot of the astronauts that went up, uh, basically realizations, epiphanies that they had that humanity is all one, right? This idea that like borders once you get up and see there there's, there's no, no borders there. yeah there's no yeah, maps exactly. they're not it's not different colors right it's well i mean some of it's uh brown and other parts are more green you know but like that's no and that's it. exactly it um and that's where this whole narrative is going is that at some point um while the space program was off with its face forward uh trying to show everybody that capitalism was better than communism all of a sudden it turned around and got just this beautiful view and thought oh yeah these realizations more yeah yeah and it it was a slow process as uh as a massive movement but uh for some individuals like you say you know you hear the quotes and it's just this moment where they look down on this this blue and white and green and brown ball from space and they think wow, I've only ever seen that with lines on it or um, I've only ever seen it flat, you know, like whatever. I I don't really know. I've heard a few of the astronauts say that they subsequently cried and that their fucking um, windscreen, uh, the <laughs> the glass in their spacesuits got fu- uh, fucked up and mm. they were basically <clears throat> blind and had to go inside and clean up. <laughs> like That's like me at the movie theater sometimes. Yeah. You're not a crier at the movie theater, eh? Uh, only at really, really dumb movies. So I never cry in movies that I should. <laughs> SpongeBob, the movie, you were balling for that. No, man. Like so, like in <laughs> Titanic. In Titanic, I was just so caught up in laughing that that guy fell down and went face first into the smokestack that I couldn't cry about Jack dying, you know, falling down yeah. from the door. But when I saw Dickie Roberts' child star and he came downstairs at Christmas and they wanted to play Candyland with him, it was like I lost my fucking shit. Man, yeah, I don't even understand. Every one of us <laughs> is a unique butterfly dev, so you never know what's gonna what's gonna hurt hit that's you. Fair, that's fair. 
I've always um, seen myself as more of a fucking hawk, but uh, I do want to give a one more quote here and then talk a little bit about the camera tech super super short. Uh, Please. And then we can finally get into some like crazy thing called Apollo Eleven photos and actually talk about the photos on Apollo Eleven and stuff. What do you mean? So what, 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 what modifications would a camera require uh, for space travel? But also, did NASA get back to you, by the way? Uh, no, I emailed NASA to... Uh, <laughs> stupid. I emailed... Uh, they might eventually. I emailed NASA just to ask them um, about some particular stuff. But uh, most of this is publicly available uh, knowledge. I think that they just like actually possibly messed up a couple of things on their website, but I'm not here to call, uh, to, uh, call out NASA. The, so there's this thing, the Hasselblad, uh, 500, uh, Hasselblad was known basically, uh, I think even since the fifties for making cameras that were modular, uh, cameras that you could take shit off of. You can change the lenses, right? Change all the parts. Yeah, you can put them on, on a different viewfinder. Uh, Is there still a company that sells cameras, by the way? Oh, yeah, you can buy a Hasselblad 500, yeah. Okay. Yeah, for sure. You can buy one today. They're not even expensive. Like, film cameras are never that expensive. They're like a couple hundred bucks, 300 bucks maybe, something. Interesting. Yeah, you can buy it. You could totally buy one of these. Not the one that's on the moon. That's the, the hardest one. To <laughs> well, and I mean, dude, like, uh, I even, it's funny. Uh, I remember in your email, you asked if it was a heavily modified 500. And then I came across a source somewhere that yeah. mentioned that it was a heavily modified 500. Okay, well, there you and, go. Uh, I, I didn't even feel like it was enough to screenshot it and send it to you. It yeah. just kind of felt like we had all come to the same conclusion. Yeah, so the 500 you know? EL, like the EL just means electric. It means that you don't have to um, crank the basically the way that it would work is that you like expose that piece of film right the the light comes through the lens onto the film you would turn the crank this is what separates the 500c from the 500el i think is that mm -hmm. it's they made it electric right for nasa and hasselblad like, yeah. wor worked really closely uh especially when it came to apollo 11 they're a, a swedish company right mm -hmm. uh home of meshuga um opeth <laughs> some of the best metal bands uh my buddy uh henrik who was on the podcast he's actually swedish uh so, so um, shout out I, to him yeah i have a question yeah what's up in the case of apollo 8 and the earthrise photo it was taken with a hasselblad camera with a color film yeah now for some reason in my head i thought that the cameras that they took for apollo 11 were uh black and white and they mm -hmm. added color in later am i wrong about that uh i think that you are yeah so okay. The, okay. the the film that they brought uh was specially developed by kodak and they brought mostly color film they did bring uh some black and white i think basically it breaks down it's like two-thirds color film and mm -hmm. uh and one-third black and white but i do want to answer your, 
I want to answer your first question before I answer any more questions. Okay. <laughs> so you asked how they were modified. Uh, one of the things is the fact that it was electric that you didn't have to hand crank every time that you took a photo. So it really mm -hmm. automated. You, you mentioned that they just like strapped it to themselves, to their chest and kind and of went, yeah. go around and took photos, right? So like to, to automate that process a little bit. When you're, when you're an astronomer, you got a lot of stuff to worry about, right? There's a lot of things oh, yeah. going on. So you don't want to be purely thinking about the, uh, the taking of these photos. Uh, I mentioned earlier earlier that like they started with 35 millimeter film at the beginning it's like way smaller film right like yeah. literally 35 millimeters i think across um from corner to corner so these Hasselblads they used uh 70 millimeter film which is the yeah. same as IMAX today uh so these okay. are like these are pretty high resolution photos you get like six by six uh, nice images from these. Uh, other modifications were just to allow for way more film to fit inside. Uh, the okay. traditional uh, magazine for a Hasselblad 500, like the 500C, would be um, 12 photos, and they were able to. Oh, yeah, get... and there's like a lot of Apollo 11 photos. Yeah. A lot. Yeah, they could get 70 on every magazine, 70 uh, photos, 70 exposures. Um, and then there are just some, uh, you know, smaller things, getting rid of the, le the leather on it. There's like a leather strap on these Hasselblads. Okay. I, things they didn't need. Things that they didn't need create extra weight, but also like maybe microorganisms and stuff can live on that, right? That's kind of my thinking. Okay. Right? Um, and yeah, so it seems to me like um, this isn't even a model of camera that you could buy as a no. collector. No, they just made them specifically for these missions. Yeah, and maybe like Hasselblad um, put all these features in something else, right? But this is more of a case, yeah, of like these being made for NASA and then probably, you know, introduced to the public later, which a lot of technology is. It's uh, Zeus lenses I do want to shout out as well. Uh, I think they uh, had one 60 millimeter and, uh, okay. and an 80 millimeter. We're talking focal length of, oh, the, of the Zeus lenses. Interesting. So, yeah. so on Apollo 8, they used a 125 and a 250. Okay, yeah. So you want some range. Right? Yeah, so those are like they zoom probably, lenses. Yeah. They had the lenses that they needed for that, and then they saw yeah. that Earth rise and took that picture. Yeah, this is closer to like what you see. 50 millimeters is what we see, basically. Okay. Right? You know, one of the interesting um, consequences of making the camera to go on Armstrong's shoulder is that uh, of, of all of the many, many photos that were taken by Apollo 11 on the moon, uh, maybe only one or two of them actually have Armstrong in them. Yeah. Uh, for the most part, if you see an astronaut on the moon, you're seeing Aldrin. Mm -hmm. uh, with the exception of that one particular photo. Um, I'm looking through. Oh, there it is. Yeah, there's I some of going... Armstrong, but m mostly not yet. That's true. Yeah, yeah. And that was the interesting consequence of it is that... Um, the guy who mostly gets credit for having gone to the moon first is uh, the one we have left less evidence of having been there. Yeah, yeah, it's they just didn't have Instagram back in the day. Otherwise, he would have basically more. that's yeah. it. Yeah, if they could have taken selfies and posted them to the internet, yeah. he would know? have had like a blue check or whatever um, for sure, right? Uh, yeah. Interestingly, though, even though uh, NASA was already having trouble with religious groups and avoiding expressing any kind of uh religious affiliation or anything like that buzz aldrin was uh he was an elder in some kind of non-catholic christian denomination yeah. and they prepared him uh an entire communion kit 
uh, complete with uh, like a golden goblet and, um, you know, everything he would need, like a shroud and stuff like that. So uh, once um, Buzz Aldrin got to the moon, he uh, he gave himself full communion there. Oh, before shit. he went out onto the moon's surface. Yeah, so, and I know like, that these guys brought even, a lot of uh, religious icons and stuff with like all sorts of different stuff, things. Yeah. Neil Armstrong brought a picture of his his daughter who he had lost. Oh damn! Oh, I didn't know that. Wow, that's crazy. Um, Actually, uh, even NASA sent Neil Armstrong with. It was like a memorial packet. It was in the pocket of wow. his spacesuit, wow. and it featured. Um, I wrote this down in my notes. It had the medals of the um, of the Russian cosmonauts. Wow! Who had? Uh, okay, here we go. An Apollo. So they had an Apollo One mission patch in memory of Roger Chaffee, Gus Grissom, and Ed White. Uh, they had two memorial medals of Soviet cosmonauts Vladimir Komarov and Yuri Gagarin, who died in '67 and '68. Oh, wow. They had a memorial bag containing one gold replica of an olive branch as a traditional symbol of peace and a silicon message disc carrying the goodwill statements by Presidents Eisenhower, Kennedy, Johnson, and Nixon, along with messages from the leaders of 73 countries around the world. Hmm. Essentially, this was like a plastic bag that uh, had been prepared and put into Armstrong's suit. And then when they were done all their tasks and about to leave, he opened his pocket, threw it out onto the ground, apparently with the picture of his daughter, and then off they went. Yeah, so she's on the moon to this day, and every time he looks up at the moon, his daughter's picture is hanging out there. So that's pretty cool. Well, I think Neil Armstrong passed away, didn't he? He's Yeah, they're all dead now, I think. Yeah, okay. Pretty sure. Anyways, if I'm wrong, they'll write in. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I mean, like, uh, there's always necromancy. The, uh, I guess... That's a different podcast for sure, though. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Where are we headed? Necromancy podcast. That's another interesting one. I do want to mention the just a couple more modifications. The Rizzo plate uh, was something that was added to these cameras in order to put. Now, this is something. It, this is interesting, right? When you think about like the problem solving, there's no landmarks uh, on the moon, right? There's no buildings, so the sense of scale is all fucked up. Yeah. You don't have any point of reference for scale. So that's why they have these uh, cross marks that are actually imprinted on the film negatives. So you can never remove them from the photos. No, and a lot of people see those as evidence that these are faked. And um, I don't want to spend uh, any time. I don't want to spend any time giving that any legitimacy. <laughs> but no, that's the, that's the straight up explanation is that honestly, it's like, how do you get any sense of scale without those things? Yeah, a lot of the things that are, like there is something to be said about those conspiracy theories. You could talk about that if you wanted to, but like uh, I find that so many no, of those things are they're they're easily they're just so easily disproven. Like exactly like this one, you're like, oh, well, what's going on with these crosshairs on the thing, and are they, you know? And then you're like, oh, well, it's obviously this. Like they were done for this particular reason of the mission that 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 exists, right? Like those kinds of conspiracy theories yeah. don't bring any proof. They bring compelling questions. That's Compelling true. questions are interesting. Yeah. But they are not proof.
I, I yeah, I, I think that we already kind of covered this, but just the fact, like at this point, they are recognizing the value of photography. They're putting, oh, yeah. they're putting a lot more work into it, like customizing these cameras so much, um, and really like thinking out these things. We'll get into it, but they actually, before even Apollo Eleven was sent there, uh, that they already had photography of the moon going on, and they already had like orbiting dark rooms essentially <laughs> isn't yeah, that crazy and i mean like not only is this a robust example of how you've beaten the soviet union to the moon yeah um but also you know uh, almost immediately again the public became enamored with a lot of these photos yeah yeah there was a big it became like a big part of the mission it was like we will we'll need this as evidence as as um things that uh, um basically data right that we can use to yeah. for future missions but then also just like the bigger thing of sharing that with the world and that ties in of course you know we've kind of gotten away from it and i'm happy to have gotten away from it but that thing of the cold war and the competition trying to show which nation is the best well you know it doesn't matter the cool shit that you do if you can't show anybody because you don't have any dope ass photos of it so exactly okay so, that was the yeah. russians weakness yeah, the Russians really didn't understand the the value of propaganda. I don't think as they much treated as their Americans. space program with an element of secrecy, so right, people didn't yeah, get excited yeah. about it. You hmm. know what I mean? Hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting angle, man. That's very interesting. We'll talk about that in a bit. I do want to stay on the since this is the photo first podcast top, topic master. <laughs> since we're here, you know, uh, in in camera land, I kind of want to stay here. I have the actual settings that they used on the moon, so that's pretty crazy. I don't know much about that, but I'd love to hear it. Well, the people who listen to the podcast will be super interested to hear it, hopefully. <laughs> uh, so it even said right on the cameras, I believe, these settings. Uh, ISO 160. Uh, shutter speed 1 over 250. And then it says variable aperture from 5.6 to 11. So let me break that down. Uh, ISO basically is like the boost of your of your sensor, right? So you get more... Uh, you get a brighter image, but you get more grain when you boost your ISO. So 100 is like the baseline of ISO, like the lowest ISO basically that you can use is 100. Anything after that, you're like going to have a brighter photo, um, but you're going to have more grain, right? So you can see why they had it at 160. There's a lot of light on the moon, right? So you don't really need to be boosting that ISO. And uh, yeah, you're not getting in that grain then, right? You have uh, photos without grain, which is cool. Uh, so the shutter speed thing, uh, 1 over 250. Basically, uh, my friend Alexi told me when I started shooting, like seriously getting into DSLRs and stuff, that only a true master of photography can shoot with a shutter speed uh, that is, you know, longer than uh, 100, right? The Hobbit movies were an example of this. It's why they <laughs> That's why the Hobbit movies were asked. Uh, basically, at 250, um, you're going to not have any motion blur or anything like that, right? If you have uh, that shutter speed, uh, basically where your shutter is open for too long, you start to have the possibility of like blurry images, motion blur, and things, right? You don't want that. So, yeah, that's kind of the, the explanation for the shutter speed there. And then uh, the variable aperture thing. Basically, that's where they had some freedom. Uh, all that's basically going to do is change the amount of light, like how bright it is, and also uh, just like the depth of field, right? 5.6, you're still kind of getting most shit in focus. At 11, you're getting, uh, at f11, you're getting, um, you know, 
pretty much everything in focus. So yeah, just interesting to know. You may have already explained this and all the stuff that you just said, but I didn't necessarily know all the words, so I missed it. But essentially, <laughs> um, if I'm taking a camera of, say, the stars or something like that, um, usually I have to spend uh, a few seconds doing it, getting a long exposure photo. Yeah. Um, did they Did they set up these cameras for these astronauts so that Neil Armstrong, say, with a camera on his shoulder, isn't going to have to, you know, hold a perfect still for five seconds. No. Um, or he so like, did, did they did they account for that sort of thing? Yeah, that's why you have the fast shutter, right? So you're not doing long exposures okay. ever. You know, you don't need to. Okay, there's tons so of, you're there's getting tons of lots light. of light without having to hold it in place for too long. There's tons of light. Yeah. Okay. There's cool. no atmosphere, really, right? Well, that's fair, but at the same time, when there's some pictures on the moon that people say, why are there no stars in the background? And the easy answer is because taking pictures of stars requires long exposure, right. so they're not there. Exactly. Yeah, dude. Yeah, you totally get it. You totally get it. That's cool. Uh, in addition to the Hasselblads that we've talked at length about at this point, uh, there's two 16-millimeter um, mirror motion picture film cameras uh, that are... Uh, basically the same thing that they were doing with the photos. Yeah, they're kind of... Well, actually, they are not television cameras. These ones are actually printing to film. Uh, They did have black and white and uh, TV, color TV cameras, the Westinghouse cameras. Uh, And then here's... This is really cool. So when you send those signals uh, to Earth, they say that they are getting a live feed from the moon. It's actually not true. 1.29 seconds is how long it takes radio waves from the moon to the... To uh, the yeah, earth. and I mean, this is uh, simple physics, so nothing can travel faster than the speed of light. And if it takes light one or two seconds to get from the yeah. moon to the earth, yeah. then a signal couldn't do it any faster yeah. than that. Yeah, so so here's, um, the, yeah, so here's the crazy thing. Like, they... Uh, they actually sent them to radio station or to uh, radio receivers in California. And then because of like the rotation of shit, those would go out. You like you had to again, going back to how basic the technology is, they had to have line of sight with with the radio waves. Not only that, they ended up switching the signal to, to Australia. A, a receiver in Australia because it was just better. Yeah, yeah. See, you know this shit. That's crazy, man. Yeah, this is... Yeah, the, the original broadcast was... So, because the cameras that Apollo 11 brought to the moon were not exactly news cameras, the news wasn't able to hook their feed directly into it. So, NASA played it on a TV, and then the news pointed a camera at that TV. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that looked horrible, but it was the best that they had. Yeah, they didn't and have And then OBS. they saw the Australian... <laughs> They saw the Australian feed, which was, I guess, slightly better. And then they switched over to that. I don't know. I mean, if the morons had just had 4K or uh, 1080p, you know, that'll teach them. (laughs) No, but um, yeah, exactly. But uh, I mean, honestly, um, I think this was a time when. um, How should I say it? Uh, you know, pictures from cameras were either really good or really bad. Um, and um, I mean, honestly, when you look at 
when you look at the galleries of the Apollo photos, which are extensive, um, they're not only really detailed, but they're really, really beautiful. And when you look at them, like I'm not getting the sense of looking at um, like a, like a doctor, a scientifically doctored photo or anything like that. You know what I mean? Like currently I'm looking at the Saturn V rocket. Uh, most of the outside of its bottom stage Mm-hmm. is shaking so much that there's gas coming out of it and there's a huge explosion underneath. Hmm. But none of this feel like, feels like a computer did it, you know? Um, mm-hmm. Have you ever... Do you remember back when digital cameras came out and you could compare pictures taken by film cameras and early digital cameras at the same time? Yeah, you still can do that. And I mean, like, I don't know. I assume that digital cameras who advance, have advanced to the point where some of them will give you a better and more detailed picture. They're better in every Than way. a film camera. But at the same time, when I think about a picture from a film camera and what those pictures were like when I was younger, yeah. they felt like a more realistic representation of what was looked at than what the digital camera took a picture of, if you know wow. what I mean. It's more what it feels like. Right? And what was I don't know much about cameras, to be honest. Yeah. I just like taking pictures. Yeah, it's an interesting point. It's cool that these are on film, anyways. Like it, it, it gives them that uh, that vibe, right? So. mentioned that Kodak specially developed their film for this, like yeah. uh, basically invented a type of film for this. They oh, also they were small and compact, eh? Uh, not that they were, no, that they were 70 millimeter. They were actually big. Um, oh, okay. They were thinner. Okay. They were thinner than, than normal film. That is part of it. Kodak also invented a uh, entirely new type of camera for this, uh, specifically just for taking close-up photos of the surface. So I think that that's pretty interesting. Uh, I want to talk about how these things were developed as well. I do know that. So they took advantage of something that had existed for a while. These lunar orbitals, uh, which were basically, like I said, kind of dark rooms uh, floating around in space. Um, they, well, not really dark rooms because it wasn't like a chemical process. They just kind of scanned the negatives, right? And then I think it's interesting that they uh, use that same technology. It's it's basic radio waves. That's how they got the images. So you could have... Is that to say know. that there was like uh, a physical like satellite rotating around receiving yes. pictures? Yes. Really? Yes, so they I've would. Never heard of this before. Yeah, so they would send the like once the the exposures were done, they would send the film up to those orbitals. The orbitals were there already because they were already capturing pictures of the moon's surface, developing them on the orbitals, and using radio waves to send them back to Earth. They like, had this thing called the. They actually had this thing called the Corona program before they were able to do the radio wave thing, where they would develop them on the fucking orbitals and then put them in little capsules and shoot them back to Earth. You can look that up. The Corona program. Yeah, so we can get, uh, we're, we're almost there. <laughs> we're getting towards the end of this. Uh, I'm feeling pretty good. I think I feel a lot better than the astronauts Just, did in space. So <laughs> what do you want to say? Oh, probably, yeah. So uh, um, I don't really know 
specifically what you might be uh, asking about me wanting to say, but since you mentioned it, yeah, uh, at no point did I ever get any sense from any of the Apollo missions that any of them had a good time. It's not that they hated what they were doing or didn't want to do it. It was just that it seems, it seems like a pretty universal part of the experience of the Apollo program yeah. that it was not fun to get they in had, that craft. I don't think that they didn't have a good time. I think it was that the highs were highs and the lows were lows. And it's like, it's like any kind of really exciting job, like people, you know, work in the military or whatever. Um, it's mostly nothing. It's mostly waiting, right? Security guards, it's very rare you actually get to chase a guy down and tackle his ass, right? Yeah. Almost never yeah. happens. You know what I mean? Well, and it, it, and it's funny because the Apollo program was that, yeah. except also you were eating dehydrated food stuck in a tin can for like three days, one, one way on the trip. Um, you know, like it was just, it was, um, it, the only thing that made the experience more pleasurable were the trips that were longer. So it's like Apollo 11, they, they didn't have necessarily what one might consider a pleasurable vacation. They did what they did. They had a good time doing it. You know what I mean? But they like, they got there. They took a break. They went out. They did like a 20-hour spacewalk. And then they went back and left basically after a nap. You know what I mean? It was like a, a get there and do the job sort of thing. But then a couple of Apollos later, they land. They take an eight-hour nap. And then they get out and unload the fucking car. Yeah, yeah. And then they go for like a joyride and stay for three days. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like they weren't all one in the same. But um, the the only Apollo missions that ever looked fun to me were the ones where they stayed for extended period of times. Yeah. Instead of getting there and being like, we got here. Yeah. I believe it's nine days that they spent total. So that's like the three days there, a few days on the planet. What? Uh, Apollo uh, Apollo 11? 11? Yeah. Yeah. So, so I think they spent like a total of two or three days on the surface, but yeah. they took a nap when they got there and they took a nap before they left. Yeah. It's also weird. Like what do days mean when you're on the moon? Right. That's a weird thing to think about. <laughs> um, I was almost certain that they were still calculating. They the are calculating by your in a 24 hour. They are. Day. They are. It's just, um, yeah, it's just weird to think about because it doesn't really that references earth. And yeah, that's interesting. Um, well, and I mean, yeah. your uh, circadian rhythm doesn't matter at that point. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah. Uh, you're not on Earth anymore. You're not getting Earth sun exposure. Yeah. And to give you an idea of like how still untested these waters were, they put them into quarantine for three weeks when they got back. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. So, you know, people think about the ticker tape parade and all that crap and them touring the world. Uh, they went yeah, to that was after being stuck in a, uh, uh, an RV for three weeks. <laughs> yeah, because they don't know, right? They might have some gnarly space cancers that like you never heard of. So. But honestly, if or you whatever think about contagious it, things, uh, it know. wasn't a huge deal for the astronauts at the time because they they were forced to do everything together while they were training in the lead up to the mission. Yeah, yeah. So that they would be used to being with each other, and then they were stuck in a um, uh, you know twenty or yeah. thirty cubic yeah. foot. Yeah, tube, yeah. Um, with the same three guys for a yeah. three day three day go three day mission three day back yeah, yeah and and then they get back and then they're stuck in another that's, fucking tube that's gotta together. be like, that's gotta be awful though that's like getting held back a grade you know like oh i'm sure it was horrible <laughs> but at the same time 
I, if I think anybody could do it, they, it was them, right? Yeah. When they were looking at astronauts, they were looking for people who were going to function well together as a team. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't think it, it's just a matter of convenience that the earliest astronauts were military men because they were selected by um, kind of a group of people who came from the military. I don't think it was that simple. I think it was just that um, military people are used to being putting, forced into a barracks together for extended periods of time. They're used to putting their um, life on the line. They're used to turning off their emotions in order to get a job done. They're used to like taking incredible sacrificing risks. individuality to make the group function better. That's mm-hmm. the military. Yeah. Yep. And um, it, it was majority military. It isn't anymore, actually, interestingly. So no, 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 no. I think it's funny because almost all of the Apollo flights had mostly military guys on them except for the last one, Apollo 17, that had Jack Schmidt, who was like mm-hmm. the only geologist in the entire early astronaut groups. Nice. Wow. That's that's really cool to know. Why wouldn't you bring more? I think that that would be one of the... Yeah, so I would have had a geologist <laughs> on literally every mission. But yeah. I think at that point, it was just kind of like, hey, uh, who passed the test? Because, you know, it's... On the one hand, it's a duty you're being asked to do by your country. But, like, if you were... Um, you know, a top of the line um, Air Force pilot, the type of uh, a, a type personality who not only wanted to be better than everybody around them, but then also wanted to fly the best planes that nobody had ever flown before, just because you thought that you were the fucking ballsiest and best pilot there was. Yeah. You know, like thrill, it, it's, the thrill seeking for sure. Comes in exactly. Here. So the program definitely attracted uh, a type of person. Yeah, they could handle that quarantine thing. Interesting, they had, interestingly, they couldn't handle the media. <laughs> the media like really fucked these guys up. <laughs> yeah, well, and I mean, frankly, I don't, I don't blame them. No kidding. Um, dude. Uh, honestly, I don't know how I would deal with um, the idea of being famous. Yeah. Uh, except to basically just ignore it all and say, "Go fuck yourselves." I don't care what any of you thinks. Yeah, it would have been definitely but, challenging. Um, if I had been, you know, those guys grew up in an age where the idea of being exposed to the media like that was very foreign. Yeah. Um, fame was such a crazy concept. Yeah. Now anyone um, can become famous. You can go on. Yeah. YouTube and get yeah, famous. exactly. If I, if I jump on the internet and say the right thing, all of a sudden yeah. I'm famous for some reason. Or if I have this horrible school picture from the eighties where I look awkward <laughs> and it's like, now I'm bad luck, Brian or scumbag yeah, Steve or something like that. Well, being scumbag Steve wouldn't be as bad as being bad. Luck I think, Brian. I think I'd rather be bad luck, Brian, because bad luck, <laughs> Brian didn't do anything to earn the reputation. Yeah. You know what I mean? He took a dorky school photo and yeah. then people were like, it's go to work with your father day, but you have right. two mothers. <laughs> Anyways, uh, I'm going to drop some final thoughts on you guys, and then Devin's going to drop some final thoughts. This has been amazing. I learned so much shit by doing this, Devin. Thank you so much for uh, for putting in the hard work, for researching this stuff. I know uh, you kind of knew a lot of it already. By the way, did, <laughs> did we even finish, or is this turning into like another episode? Uh, no, no, no. We're just final thoughts, and we're going to be done. <laughs> okay. Uh, so what I really take, my, my kind of key takeaways... Uh, I think that this is really a junction. You know, we mentioned those 
um, forks in the road in history where it could have kind of gone either way. I think that this is one of those, like this is a junction in history. We emerge from this with like an unexpected new understanding of ourselves, like what we're capable of as human species, right? Uh, this and idea of like, and as individuals, that you can do anything, that you literally can do anything, right? That well, science, I mean, science will Imagine looking at a picture of Neil Armstrong on the moon in his space boot, space yeah. suit taken by Buzz Aldrin. Mm -hmm. And, and that shield is down, so you can't mm -hmm. see his face, which is magical because yep. you can look at that picture and think to yourself, holy Jesus, yeah. I could go to the moon. I could be there. Yeah, it's crazy, right? You're allowed to have thoughts like that about the possibilities. Uh, I think it's also like a, a new level of like propaganda, media control, manipulation, suspicion of the government, all of these things. You know, they existed before, but they're really ramped up. Uh, in this era so I think that that's really interesting and ties in very nicely with the the photo uh, elements of it right that we're kind of focused on um, absolutely yeah, yeah. I, I would say that this whole thing, like the space race, actually moved the Cold War in a less destructive direction. The only other actually, thing that they could really do was like wage proxy wars, um, two of the worst wars in history. Uh, the I mean, all wars are bad, but these ones are pretty fucking brutal and pointless. Uh, you know, the war in Afghanistan, the first one that the Soviet Union did, and then uh, the Vietnam War, right? Instead of just dumping billions into that, at least, you know, if they're going to dump billions into something, I'm glad they dumped the billions into this instead of killing everybody right i think that's cool and and not only that um not that it hadn't happened before yeah but it kind of opened a permanent medium for science to become a peaceful and combined effort right like there are treaties that specifically forbid the uh, accumulation of weapons in space and I don't know if anybody's really, really following that or not, but the truth is this. Over the course of the last 20 or 30 years, what we've seen is that regardless of the politics of their government, the space agencies of the world seem perfectly happy to ignore the, the political context now. And even if they won't work together, at the very least, not get in each other's ways. Um, and I think what we've seen is the beginning, hopefully, of a much larger um, and broader movement across the world where science is um, a combined community effort that belongs to all of us mm -hmm. that we are all working on for ourselves and each other because we've reached the point where science is going in such incredible directions that we can't even expect yet. Yeah. Um, we didn't know what the benefits for us technologically or scientifically of going to the moon were going to be, but then they turned out to be uh, extraordinary. Um, so it seems to me that uh, if we pick extraordinary goals that are achievable and we're willing to do the work that it takes to achieve them, then we're going to benefit in a whole bunch of ancillary ways that we just can't even predict yet. Yeah. Crazy, man. Crazy, crazy, big, uh, Big brain, big brain, big thoughts. I'm running out of yeah, words I, now, but you know, we've been I doing think this for that three hours. Big things could be coming <laughs> could be coming for, for us and for yeah. space like Yeah, cool. I think like it's it's the rebirth of the human species in a way, or you know, like we're we're little babies floating around in space by an umbilical cord. I really can't escape like the power of that image. That kind of I think explains my feelings on it better than anything. Yeah. So 
Uh, yeah, and it's, I think it's also cool to get obsessed with stuff. That's been something that I walked away from this with. Like, I got really obsessed Except with this. Except people. Not cool. Huh? Don't get Except obsessed. Except people. Don't not get cool. Ob- don't get obsessed with people? Yeah, yeah, not cool. <laughs> Just like, don't creep girls out? Is that kind of what you're saying? celebrities either whatever oh just don't get obsessed with people yeah fair enough yeah, yeah. Just don't get it. yeah people are always shittier than than you think <laughs> get obsessed with things not people yeah get obsessed with uh with learning ideas yeah ideas yeah. yeah and yeah playing guitar and shit like that uh yeah so that's kind of my final thoughts on this whole thing do you have anything else to uh to say before we go and then you can tell us where people can find you online bro yeah, uh, if I wanted to say anything, it's that uh, if you have questions or if you have curiosity or thoughts, I encourage you to read. Um, you know, uh, rather than go to YouTube and find a video and learn from it, find yourself a textbook, find yourself a web page from, from NASA or from uh, Encyclopedia Britannica or uh, even from things like um, MIT free courseware. But yeah. if you have curiosity, <clears throat> check you your sources as well and look for multiple you, sources, yeah. you know, it's something's yeah. more if likely to be true. you have curiosity and you want to understand the world, don't let somebody else compile it for That's you. Right. Yes. Yes. Go find it from the sources, from the people that, that are, are learning it, that are finding it out right now. Yeah. And listen to podcasts. <laughs> podcasts are wonderful yeah exactly and listen to my buddy jared on his podcast yes photo friends ah perfect all right uh where can people find you online bro uh once again they can find me uh where my paintings are on my instagram at devon k painting cool. uh, that's d-e-v-e-n-k-a-y and you can figure out how to spell painting yourself Wicked it's on man. facebook and it's on instagram and hopefully i'm going to be podcasting soon hopefully yeah we'll at least uh we'll have you come on here and and help help me (laughs) and jared thank you thank you so much for having me i've had a great time doing this dude this was super fun you're you took time out of the wood you came back from the woods bro to do this so that's dedicated yeah you know at some point i had to wash my laundry and pick up new food anyways yeah that's true well i mean you can always that's the whole point of going to the woods with a gun is to get uh I hope that you and I are going to be podcasting something very soon because this has been a super positive experience. Sick, man. Glad to hear it. If you guys want to check out more of my BS, if you want to see some of the photos that we mentioned here, photo underscore friends underscore pod on Instagram. Uh, we're probably going to get new listeners from this series. If you, this is your first time listening, definitely follow the podcast. We do this thing every freaking week and uh, you know it's value packed. It's going to make you better at photography. I promise you it will make you better at photography. Devin's making faces. We need a random, some random words for the people before we go. Three words to to that made a million. Three words that okay. made a million. For this one right here, I'm going to quote the man himself, Jerry Springer. Be good to each other. <laughs>